0: I joke that every board I'm on is inherently more diverse because I'm on it. So I've never been on a not diverse board.
1: I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about, all from the comfort of your home,
0: isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, What's your secret?
1: There's a thing in business school called the Heidi Howard experiment. It was created by Francis Flynn back when he was a professor at Columbia. He since brought it to Stanford with him. He takes a case study of a successful executive turned venture capitalist and shows it to his students. Some of the students think the executive is named Heidi. The others are told the executive is named Howard. Otherwise, exact same person. And then he asks his students to evaluate that person.
0: And uh, it turned out that they deemed both Howard and Heidi were equally competent, but they liked Howard a lot better. So, rather a fascinating result. It makes me want to change my name to Howard.
1: That, as you might have guessed, is the real Heidi. Heidi. It was a description of her life the students were reading Heidi Roysen of Threshold Ventures There is no Howard How is that possible I mean here are two <laughs> people they've not met and Howard is fictional Yeah and yet they like Howard better than Heidi what is happening there
0: So I you know so the answer is that there are behaviors acceptable for men I mean the answer that the presumed answer who knows why people decide what they decide, but that things are okay for men to do to be forthright to be aggressive to network to to um, to, to do the kind of things I do in the case are okay for men but not okay for women now. I have an interesting theory which uh, which is is part of my always looking for the positive in this. what I like to believe is that. Heidi is a perfectly likable person, but the case also being about me, it talks about me spending time with my children, hosting dinner parties, you know, things that are very, um, in the case, I think have a feminine orientation to them or are more things that you would expect a woman to do. I'd like to think that maybe because Howard was doing all those things in the Howard case, that he's just a guy who's, you know, way more in touch with his, with his feminine side and therefore is a more likable person version of Howard.
1: I think you already know this, but I have found as a, as a father and as a husband that all you have to do is make dinner and you just look like some kind of saint. Yes. Well, men, I, men can get away with so much yes. just by unloading the dishwasher.
0: Hey, you know, 50, 50. That's, that's my vote. Well, I'm, so, talking you know.
1: about, I'm talking about 1090. I yeah. mean, we do the 10% and we look like we're saints sometimes.
0: Well, I think you can always do better.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Early on, you wrote that, that Being a woman actually helped you. Yes. Uh, Even at a time in which there were very few women, or perhaps because there were very few women in tech, you wouldn't think that would be the case, but it got you the attention that you needed, particularly to make sales.
0: I think that this is true of anything that makes you stand out. I think for many of our attributes, there is a yin and a yang to them. There's a pro and a con. There are things that work to your advantage, and there are things that work to your disadvantage, whether whatever that is. And, and I think for me in the early days being a woman, yes, there were times people didn't take me seriously. There were times I didn't get invited to the right events or I didn't, you know, there were, there were ways that, um, that I was excluded from the inner sanctum of the people who got things done. The flip side is that I really stood out. You know, I, you know, when I would, uh, I was in Stanford business school in the early eighties and you'd have speakers like, you know, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Trip Hawkins or Fred Gibbons or, you know, the, all these all these men who were the men who were kind of the, the stars of our industry at the time. And when 10 people walk up at the end of the class to ask more questions and I'm the only woman, my questions are going to get answered, right? So I don't think that it is an, a, a, it is not a, an exploitive thing in any way. I hope it's not. It's just a, a matter of your presence is different because you're a woman and if that leads to your being, you know, singled out, you try to put your best foot forward.
1: Where do you think we are now?
0: Better, but not awesome. Um, I teach a class at Stanford. It's a fellowship called the Threshold Venture Fellows, and we just had our opening session last night. It's a highly competitive program. We had 72 applicants for 12 positions. They're all master students in in what I call the hard sciences: CS, Aero, Astro, EE. I mean, these are these are rock star people. And we were sitting around at dinner last night, and and it's a gender balance group. Out of 12, we have six women and six men. And the two of us who teach it are both women: Tina Seelig and myself. And we were talking. About about this, and we said that the the students were saying that they felt that the um, the gender bias that comes out that's really blatant is now more hidden because mm. everybody knows you're not supposed to do that stuff. But it's the subtle bias, it's the unsaid things that still exist, and in a way, that's more insidious because you don't even know it's happening. <sighs>
1: Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's com slash Wondery. So we started this conversation talking about your experience being a woman in tech, not your investments. And sometimes I'm uncomfortable, right? And I was talking with John Thompson, the chairman of Microsoft, and we started talking about race. And he said... I've been African-American for 40 years. There's nothing new about that. What's the big (laughs) deal? My performance is what matters, not my ethnic background people talk to you about women in technology often. Do you ever think, oh, hold on a minute. Let's talk about my amazing investment in Memphis Meats. Let's start there.
0: I do find that for whatever reason, I think part of it is because it is topical today to talk about women in tech, women in venture. And since I am one of those, it's a natural topic of conversation. But my day-to-day job, it almost never comes up, right? It it is not something that I'm walking around, you know, I don't know. uh, It's not a part, I guess it's a part of who I am, but I'm not chosen because I'm a woman to lead investments or be on boards or do anything like that. I'm chosen for my ability, my network, my judgment, um, those things. And the work I do, if you call any one of the CEOs I work with, they're not going to say, well, she's great for a woman, <laughs> right? I mean, they're not going to say that they're going to, I mean, hopefully they're going to say she's great and here's all the things she's done. And so I, 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 laugh at, at what he said though, because, um, I, I joined the board of this public company, DMGT about eight or nine, eight years ago, 70 years ago. And, um, and I was their first woman in 125 years of corporate history. And so it was kind of a big deal for, you know, it was kind of a big deal. And I go to my first board meeting, and at the end, one of the board members said to me, well, how was that for you? And I said, well, for me, it was just like every other day, but how was that for you? Because you've had 125 years without somebody like me in the room and they're awesome. And it's been an awesome experience. And, and, you know, now there, there is another uh, woman on the board and there are women in the executive, there have always been women in the executive ranks who come into the board meetings. So it's, it is a, it's a really wonderful company a wonderful dynamic, but, um, it is interesting that for other people it's different, but for me, I joke that every board I'm on is inherently more diverse because I'm on it. So I've never been on a not diverse board.
1: You mentioned networking and you've been rather famous for your network. Tell me how to maintain a network in which I meet lots of people, but I don't necessarily interact with them all that often. For instance, it may be another year before you and I ever talk to each other again. How are you going to maintain that network with me?
0: So it's a great question, and I get it all the time. And for me, in a way, I don't even like the word networking because it sort of implies this kind of monkey barring from person to person to get what as you want. As if you're want. using, right, you're yeah, using I people don't, I for a I see it purpose. As, as collecting a bouquet of, you know, people, of fellow travelers on this journey. And um, to me, I in, inherently, I just, I find people really interesting and I don't necessarily look at each of my interactions with a new person as what am I going to get from that person? It is, are they interesting? Do I like them? And, and so I, do I want them in my network? I, I think that today we have a lot of tools for keeping in touch. There's, you know, obviously LinkedIn and, and I'm a huge user of LinkedIn and I'm, you know, big, big fan of, of it because it's very easy to reestablish a connection with someone. I think that Social media is also, it's a mixed blessing. It's a double-edged sword, but I really think that one of the, when you think about all your weak connections, those people who don't hear from you very often one of the things that keeps you alive in their minds may be your social media presence, right? And certainly there are people who that is part of their business model. It's not part of my business model, but for example, I do an occasional blog, I call it Help Me Heidi, that is about advice, you know, business advice to entrepreneurs, but with a little bit of a sassy tongue-in-cheek attitude. Because well, that's what I'm like and I want to have fun with it. And that's who I am as a, as a personality. And so I think that this idea of having a consistent presence across all the instantiations that are you, whether it's your social media, whether it's what like you're like in person, whether it's what you're like in, in a conversation like this, if you can be consistent and you can decide your own, in essence, like a, like a corporation decides a culture or hopefully does a person decides what are my cultural attributes am i upfront am i funny or not am i am i responsive am i succinct what what is what is what am i and if you can be consistent then you also have people understand more what to expect from you and so i do think that some of that is just what you're putting out there i also think that it is imperative on, on the person, me, if I'm reaching out to someone to ask them for something, I should look for the win-win and I should make it as easy for them as possible to be helpful to me. And I find that very often today in this busy world, when we reach out to someone, we do it in the way that is most efficient for us. But really what we should do is in the way that's most efficient for the person we're asking the favor from. And that involves, you know, doing your homework, being prepared, making the email as short as possible. If they need an attachment, make sure it's there. If they need an out, you know, make sure they and have an making, out.
1: And making a specific ask.
0: And making a very specific ask. I, always, I laugh the at these emails like, you know, you get a three page email and it's the yes. one sentence at the bottom. That's the ask. Um, I'm actually about to write a blog post about this. Uh, I, I, have a para, I have a pair of blog posts. I'm, I'm there. I'm brewing right now. And it's funny cause they sound like opposites, but they're not. One of them is how to get other people to say yes. And the other one is how to say no. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I do believe that both learning, learning how to get a yes out of people and learning when it's good for you to give a yes versus learning when a no is the right answer is actually very important. I mean, what's more important to any human being than our use of our time.
1: There's also great pre- pleasure in in your network, not necessarily asking or getting from a person, but rather putting person A and person B together. Mm-hmm. That connection, making mm-hmm. that connection between two people with whom you have no business, right. uh, uh, is is incredibly pleasurable.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, feels good, right? And it's and again. If I'm looking for the win-win, and not everything is a win-win in my life, right? There is a whole component of my life that I call the pay-it-forward hours, right, where it's somebody is coming to me, particularly a woman entrepreneur, and maybe she needs some guidance or reflection on her on her business plan, even though it's not something that fits the Threshold Ventures profile, or what we would invest in. I'm going to take a certain amount of my time and give it to those purposes. There is no idea that it's going to be a win-win for me or it's going to be that I'm going to be able to potentially even make it make those connections for that person. But I feel that we all should commit some time, especially to that next generation, to help them be more successful as well.
1: You spoke of teaching at Stanford to people who were in the hard sciences. You were an English major. Yes. What's it like? I myself was an English major. Oh, yay. What's it like being in the technology industry as an English major? I should also <laughs> point out you have an MBA from Stanford yes. as well. Uh, but you're still inherently, you know, you're talking about writing blog posts and not, yeah. and not coding, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm laughing because sometimes I think I went back and got an MBA just because, like, my English major was like, my English degree was like a demerit. So I had to go make <laughs> up for that with an MBA. Uh, you know, seriously, it's interesting that. my English degree, specifically it was creative writing, communicating is one of the most important things you do as a CEO and a leader. And so the discipline of learning how to write and how to communicate turned out to be very valuable to me in the rest of my career. Now, I would say from a pedigree perspective, there are certain degrees that are quote-unquote, more valued than other degrees. And I found in my first job after college that I worked in a tech company, Tandem Computers. I was the editor of the company newspaper. Uh, and I discovered two things while I was doing that. One is the people getting ahead had MBAs or engineering degrees, and I didn't. And the other thing was I didn't want to write about what other people were doing to, you know, put the put the football over the over the goal line. I wanted to do it. And my role was really documenting the successes of others. And that wasn't satisfying to me. And so that was a big part of the drive that led me back to Stanford to get my MBA. Now, while I was there, I happened to be, you know, talking about right place at the right time with the right sibling, right? Number one, <laughs> I was at Sil- in Silicon Valley in, you know, 1981 and 1983, really the dawn of the personal computer revolution. Number two, I have a brilliant brother programmer. Uh, so perfect, perfect mix of opportunity. And that's what led to, to our co-founding our, our company, Teemaker.
1: Teemaker, which Heidi founded with her brother, Peter, was one of the very first spreadsheet programs back in the early 80s. Heidi served as CEO and would later go on to be vice president at Apple and then to venture capital and teaching at Stanford. You teach at Stanford. Yes. You got your graduate degree at Stanford. Yes. You got your undergraduate degree yes. at Stanford. You were born at Stanford. I, I mean was. literally you yes. were born at Stanford. I was literally
0: born at the Stanford Hospital.
1: <laughs> the that, old hospital. That place is important to you.
0: Yes, it is an important place to me. I just can't seem to get away from it. And my daughter just graduated from there last year, so <laughs> Can you Come imagine if circle. she went to Cal? That'd be awful. My brothers went to Cal. Um and and a couple of my uh nieces and nephews have gone to Cal, so uh, we are, as they call well, it, a, we are, else. as they call it, a house divided. But somehow <laughs> we managed to, to get along and they did win the big game last year. Or so
1: tell me, tell me what's going on with Stanford kids. How have they changed over the years? What are the what's what are the focus of the the kids that are coming out of the school right now?
0: I think that in particular in the last few years, what we have seen, and, and again, this may be, I may be biased because, again, I can't speak for, I can't speak for all Stanford students. That is I can't a pretty general question, yeah. You know, there's however many, 15,000 students yeah. there. I, I can't say that I've polled them recently. So this may be biased by my own course that Tina and I teach, but there is so much more of an emphasis on starting with who are you And what do you stand for? What are your ethics? What are your values? And how are you going to make the world a better place by deploying your skills? And I think that for a while, Stanford was getting dinged about being sort of startup you, a big vocational school for startups. And it is true that if you look at the resumes of the founders of most of the companies in tech, there will be a Stanford degree or two among them. So that you know, that is whether, again, whether it's a pro or a con, that is part of what Stanford has become is a, a school, a higher, higher education institution that also has a very big focus on entrepreneurship and, and, you know, really soup to nuts. I mean, very, very uh, comprehensive. If you go on, you know, if you go on the course list and you Google, or, you know, you search for classes on entrepreneurship, I swear to God, every department has a class on entrepreneurship. I think that now, with the, as they call it, tech lash, and with people really evaluating when I go do something, what is the ultimate positive or negative byproduct of what I do, that that the students are really thinking about that and building it into what they do. And that is the focus of our fellowship program. We are, you know, Threshold Venture Fellows in its sixth year and the focus has really, I wouldn't say, it, it has evolved a bit because when it started, it probably had more of what I would call tactical skill building for entrepreneurs. And we still do some of that. We, we, we work on negotiation, presentation skills, that sort of thing. But we're not what I call a PowerPoint and spreadsheet class. What we really are is trying to understand the ethos of what it takes to be an entrepreneur. What would that mean? What kind of culture are you going to build? What kind of trade-offs are you going to make? How are you going to deal with risk? How are you going to deal with failure? Are you, is this something you really want to do? Is this something that you have the right support network to do? And that doesn't mean financial, that means emotional. We talk about the dark side. We talk about, about, I have in people who've shut their companies down to come and talk about what that is like and what that feels like. And so we really try to send our graduates away with a deep understanding of both the, the joy and what I'll call for lack of a better word, the responsibility of being a leader and being an entrepreneur.
1: Is that where venture capital can help solve the tech lash? The, the, the things that we've run into is, is by instilling those questions in young (laughs) entrepreneurs. Just
0: laughing. I'm like, okay, how does Heidi solve the tech lash? Yeah, please do. Just Latin little topics. Um, yeah, that's a hard one. That's a hard one because I think that When I look at the tech lash, I see it as having two components. One component is actually, uh, or maybe it's a spectrum. It's more of a spectrum, but at the ends of the spectrum are, I'm actually doing something bad versus I did something really cool and shoot, there are unintended consequences and they're really bad. Right? And so when you look at the tech lash, I think that, and maybe I have my rose colored Silicon Valley glasses on, I think that more of the tech lash is actually against the latter than the former. And some of it obviously is, you know, all the stuff that's been written about Google of, you know, they used to be the do no evil company, and there are a lot of employees who say, well, that isn't how it operates. But then I look at some of the, the things that are happening in, you know, for example, in social media, where you've unleashed this this, this massive thing that can either be a force of good or a force of evil. And it's very hard to figure out how to put that genie back in the
1: bottle. I, it's very hard to imagine that, that Mark Zuckerberg could have imagined in his Harvard classroom as he's just trying to connect people together, that he could accidentally affect or allow someone else to affect an election.
0: Yes. I'm, I, I can, I can only imagine what it must feel like to be him and think that you affected the election. But, it, you know, I think also that it is true. And yeah. so I think that this is the – we are at the dawn of an era of technology and, and obviously implications that are global because, I mean, look at the impact tech has on everything, that particularly as we move into MLAI and, you know, start having the technology itself decide what's okay and what's not okay, that we are, um, you know – it may move faster than we understand. And that is going to be something that we really have to pay attention to. And, and, you know, that is Stanford has another initiative, um, the, the um, Stanford HAI um, Center for Human Centered Artificial Intelligence. And the idea is it's a cross disciplinary group, not only among Stanford people, but broader in the industry to say, we have to make sure that AI is deployed in a way that is still human centered, that is still the benefit people. Now, the vast majority, majority of AI today if you think about a lot of the uses of AI, it's, it's to get you to buy more stuff, right? Okay. Uh, You know, and yes, there are other applications, but, but admittedly, a lot of, of that is going into those sorts of areas. We see a lot of really incredible things that, that we think will be done with AI a lot in the um, medical field, Mm -hmm. a lot in medical diagnostics, and we've made some investments in that space and we're looking at more in that space. So we see some real positive benefit, but I think it is something that at least if you focus everyone's attention on it hopefully you will be able to do better in the future but it is it's it's really challenging.
1: It's an interesting inflection point isn't it that we are worried about ethics in Silicon Valley and in our inventions at a time of things like social networking we're on the cusp of machine learning and artificial intelligence and and medical bio in which Facebook seems just unimportant. Um, yeah. you know, well, comparison, but, but, but again, the like I, button and changing, you know, the, yeah. the the human structure of DNA.
0: But here's the thing. When you at a at a very basic level, machine learning, it learns from data sets. When it comes to a lot of those data sets, those data sets are people created, right? It's it's what people photograph. It's what people say. It's what people did. It's where people went. It's uh, it's what people got hired or didn't get hired. If you're training, you know, it, you're training artificial intelligence on a data set, and the data set is biased, the AI is going to be biased. And this is one of those basic sort of things that. We sort of didn't realize until we started seeing it. I think that one of the interesting you know, one of many of the interesting discussions we have at, at at Stanford HAI and other places is this idea of how do you make sure that the AI, you know, that artificial intelligence not only comes up with these answers, but tells you how in such a way that you can correct if in fact it is incorrect. And and particularly as it starts becoming um influential in areas uh, like like uh, uh, the legal system mm. right that can be fraught with peril if it's if it's not done properly so these are some tricky there's some very tricky issues in all of this
1: and circling back to the beginning of our conversation the data set needs to represent the americans or the the world as a whole that's right color gender absolutely. sexual identity absolutely
0: absolutely and sometimes the data set of the past is not actually what we want for the data set of the future. Because because we're evolving into a future data set. We shouldn't be looking in the rearview mirror to understand how to how to deal with, for example, a more diverse population, which is what we have and what what, what, what is be becoming even
1: more so the fabric of America. Looking forward, what are you most excited about? Just in general.
0: Oh. Oh, you know, I, I just, I have the best job in the world because I get to work with all these incredible companies that are doing amazing things every day. You know, there's, there's Zoox with the fully autonomous vehicles, planet imaging the whole earth mass every day and what Such you can do with company. that. Such
1: an amazing company. I had a t- talk with Zachary Bogue about that as yeah. well. Yeah. Incredible. Well. Yeah.
0: Incredible company. And then, you know, you brought up Memphis Meats. Uh, we were talking about Memphis Meats or you brought it up earlier. Yeah. That's an amazing company. And you this know, is not
1: plant-based. This is no, cellular. No, this
0: is real. Yes. This is real meat without killing the animals. Yeah. So this is basically the same way a surgeon grows a heart part to to implant in a heart. We are growing chicken and steak and fish and and it is, you know, again it's still early days, but the the best thing about my job is when you can grow a company and also change the world in a positive direction. And to me, I am, I, am a, I am a meat eater. I feel bad about it. Um, one of my kids is vegan. The other one doesn't eat red meat. And it's a family. Let's put it this way. It's a house divided <laughs> when it comes to this as well. Um, I like meat, but I feel bad every time I eat meat because I understand the implications of the growing, um, uh, the growing desire for meat, especially in developing nations. And so when I look at something like Memphis Meats, you know, a little trivia point, it takes about 34 calories of input to create a calorie of edible cow. We believe we can get that down to three calories. When you think about that, that means you have a 10X improvement, right? Those calories come from somewhere. They come from our environment. They come from feed. They come from land. They come from, you know, the usage of water. They come from all those things. And just the the reduction of that alone, this way more efficient way to make you know, edible protein for people is going to change a lot of, again, the negative byproduct of the industry, right? So yes, I'm a, you know, I, I, I do make the choice to eat meat every day. If I could reduce the, in essence, footprint of my meat consumption, I definitely would like to. And if hundreds of millions or even billions of people also do that, we are in essence going to change the world. So that's the stuff I get excited about. I mean, I really do tend to get most excited about the companies I work with because that's that's my job. I'm sort of, you know, on, on the good days I get to be the fairy godmother trying to help them get to the right place and do the right thing and make the right decisions. And it's it is it's really like, you know, it's the best job in the world.
1: Heidi Roizen, Threshold Ventures.